Enough is enough. Go home and stay home. It's a simple and effective way for us to get money to people. We are working hard to make sure that that happens. Telling all travelers if you're coming home, that is going directly home and isolating for 14 days. The United States, which now has the most cases in the world, yet the American president is considering sending troops to the border with Canada to protect that country from us. Sources tell Global News that the current plan would see 1,000 troops. We had some troops up in Canada. We would view as damaging to our relationship. Hi, I'm Mike Lecouture, and you're listening to The West Block. Well, we have very strong deployments on the southern border, as you know, with Mexico. And we had some troops up in Canada, but I'll find out about that. Uh, I guess it's equal justice to a certain extent. But in Canada, we, have, uh, we do have troops uh, along the border. That was U.S. President Donald Trump last week after Global News reported the Trump administration wanted to station U.S. troops within 30 kilometers of the Canadian border to monitor illegal border crossings. Our bureau chief and host of this show, Mercedes Stevenson, broke that story and she now joins us from self-isolation. Mercedes, what were your sources telling you was the reason for having those troops near the border? Well, there's the official reason, Mike, and then there is likely the political reason. Uh, let's start with the political one. Donald Trump has been under significant criticism in the United States for his administration's response to the COVID-19 emergency. Uh, and a lot of the sources I was talking to were saying this is not about any real concern about the Canadian border. Uh, one former Canadian general said this isn't an operation. Uh, it's a demonstration politically to try to change the channel and that that was the reason real motive behind it for the administration. Now, we do know that there was a leaked memo from U.S. Border Services asking for those troops, and the official reasons that were being cited by the United States when they talked to Canada was concern about potential migrants coming from Canada carrying COVID-19. The thing is, Mike, there's been no big flood, and the trend is people crossing the border from the U.S. into Canada illegally, not the other way around. Yeah, and Mercedes, we only have about half a minute now. This is a tough relationship at the best of times. What does this mean going forward now? Well, it's something that the administration in the U.S. and in Canada have to continue to handle. We have a very close relationship. The border closing would absolutely devastate both countries economically, but working with Donald Trump is no easy feat, as our viewers know. So they have to find a way to continue to maintain that relationship, keep the border open to essential goods, uh, but also move forward together. And, and that will be increasingly difficult as this crisis escalates. But so far, the government's been doing a pretty good job. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thanks for your time, Mercedes. Great reporting on this. We'll talk to you soon. And joining me now from Ottawa is General Andrew Leslie, a retired lieutenant general and former parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, responsible for Canada-U.S. relations. Thanks so much for joining us. First off, as Mercedes Stevenson reported last week, the U.S. was getting ready to militarize the border, but then they backed off. What do you think was behind that move? Well, I think... Uh... <laughs> You know what, it's sometimes difficult to figure out what goes on inside some of the minds of the folk who are articulating such opinions in the White House. I think the bottom line is that uh, the government of Canada became aware of it, and the Prime Minister did exactly the right thing. He spoke to the source, he picked up the phone, called President Trump, and the problem's gone away. Now, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christopher Freeland, used some strong language. She was saying that it would have been, quote, damaging to our relationship. 
But would Canada really have had any kind of recourse against the U.S.? There's the Rush-Bagot Treaty of 1818, but quite frankly, uh, there's such a mercurial atmosphere, keeping in mind that the White House itself, like Canada, is dealing with a whole bunch of uh, extraordinary circumstances and tragedies. Um, the right thing was done. Prime Minister picked up the phone, called the President. That's over. Now, President Trump was also talking and has been talking about having the U.S. open for business again by Easter, seemingly ignoring his own health officials' recommendations. So if Canada doesn't agree to reopen the border by then, how do you see that playing out? What the president does to decide vis-a-vis -vis the United States is, of course, entirely the purview of the Americans to resolve. Um, most of the experts that I've heard believe that the first wave has certainly not yet peaked in either Canada or the United States. The numbers in terms of the sick and the very sick are expected to spike sometime over the next couple of weeks. And then we have the second wave. So it's too soon to say when this is going to be over. And I believe that's the position of... But I guess I'm asking you, because if they reopen the border, uh, do we have any choice but to go along with it or that if they want to reopen the border? Because you look back to the NAFTA negotiations when it wasn't going the way that President Trump wanted it. He slapped tariffs on steel and aluminum. So do we just have to go along with whatever the U.S. decides? Uh, no, we don't. But look, the borders theoretically, it's not closed now. It's closed to non-essential traffic. In the last week, if memory serves from my time when I was in global affairs, about 100,000 trucks crosses the border each way. So there's still an enormous volume of machines and people that are crossing the border. They're just restricted in terms of are they carrying vital goods for Canada or vice versa. Keep in mind, you know, the average daily traffic was three times that. Yeah, okay, so let's go back to on this side of the border then. You're in favor of the government using the Emergencies Act, something that they continue to refuse to do. What arguments would you make to the Prime Minister to use it? The Emergencies Act, I believe it's important, vitally important that it be implemented now. Currently, the provinces are leading the fight against an unseen enemy that's trying to kill us and succeeding. That fight is going to have to spike in intensity and, of course, the time to introduce all the measures that are available to the federal government to provide that national leadership in terms of corralling the provinces and helping them between and amongst one another is before we get to the absolute crisis point, which still is probably a couple of weeks away. Sorry. So in, in your mind, we're not getting ahead of it at this point by not making that move right now? I believe that's correct. Yes. So far, everyone has done good work. People are working really hard, but we've already heard reports that hospitals are running short of ventilators. They're running short of masks. Teams are getting exhausted. How do you adjudicate and balance the demands for resources such as ventilators between provinces? How do you make sure that the essential services lists match? How do you actually uh, help, for example, just like BC has done, they've essentially, at, under provincial authority, they've taken charge of the supply chain. What does that mean for cross-border ability to help one another? And that's where the federal government has to lead. So would it also include seeing the military in the streets and trying to manage movement of people? Uh, because some are concerned that that could create more panic than is needed at this point. Or do you think that there is a purpose for the military to be involved in this situation now and to help sort of enforce that self-isolation or, or the physical distancing that everybody says is so important now? Look, the Emergency Act was crafted in 1988. It's well thought out. It's well reasoned. 
This would probably be a public welfare emergency. And one of the subtitles within that uh, portion of the act actually deals with a pandemic. The military has no role to play in terms of armed support. But the military is the organization of last resort. And I think quite wisely, everyone is keeping the military hunkered down. So if and when the time comes for them to backstop a variety of our current frontline troops or the medical teams and the doctors and the farmers and the truckers delivering our stuff and the pharmacists, there's a person pool available should it be required, but not yet. There's a number of politicians who continue to be so frustrated because their repeated calls for it are not being heeded by the public. That is a policing function. And especially now as we approach spring in Canada and a whole bunch of things happen in spring in Canada like floods, You've got forest fire season and you're going to have to eventually perhaps use military personnel to backstop some of the less technically demanding or sophisticated uh, medical teams, uh, be it drivers, be it person, trained personnel who are, who are organized and capable of going into harm's way without a moment's hesitation. But keep them safe, keep them secure for now because they are the force of last, or sorry, they're the organization of last resort. General Leslie, thanks for joining us. We're going to have to leave it there. We appreciate your time. You're more than welcome. There has been an outpouring of appreciation across the globe and on social media for frontline healthcare workers, but they may not be feeling the love in the workplace as they deal with a shortage of personal protective equipment. And joining me now is the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions, Linda Silas. Linda, first thing off, the Prime Minister has promised that he will get more equipment. We're hearing stories about how supplies are being rationed now at hospitals. What are you hearing from the nurses on the ground right now? Everyone is shaking their heads because we hear the message from the Prime Minister and every Premier in every province and territories, but those on the front line are being rationed or the uh, special equipment is being behind locked doors. It's pure craziness and it's insulting to uh, the healthcare professionals that are there doing their jobs, saving lives, uh, and we need to fix this and fix it quickly. So it's behind locked doors. Who has the key? And, and when are they allowed to actually get more equipment? You know, Michael, uh, in the... In this country, we have occupational health and safety laws that says that any worker must have a safe workplace, just like you, just like any construction workers, firefighters. They must have the equipment to make sure they can do their job safely. So what employers are doing now is not safe, and I would push it further, it's illegal. We have to connect with our employers and say you need to use the professional judgment of your nurse, of your uh, whole team of uh, professional healthcare workers. They need to look at the patient, the situation, and do a risk assessment right there and then and decide what kind of personal protective equipment they need to take care of the patient, but also to keep themselves safe. And this is important to do right now because patients are coming in. So I wanted to ask you, in terms of the actual pandemic here in Canada, how concerned are you that the big wave of cases has not come here yet and we still aren't ready in terms of equipment or staffing? Uh, 
Saying that we're not ready uh, is false. We are ready. We have an amazing healthcare system. What is insulting is there's that fear of we might run out of personal protective equipment, of the appropriate uh, respirators, when we know, and what we hear from the Prime Minister down, that they have stockpile. It's almost like the toilet paper fiasco. Uh, we have them there. We have to make them available for our health care uh, workers. The problem is we're just at the peak, and patients are just coming in. About 6% of uh, patients with COVID-19 enter the hospital, and a third of them enter the intensive care areas. So we have to be ready. But the hospitals, when they look at their system as a whole, they've cleared non-urgent surgeries, the beds are ready, everything. But we're still into this battle of protecting uh, healthcare workers uh, today. Now, in Italy, they've been having to choose who to treat, who to let die. How worried are you that that could happen here? Uh, you know, we're... We're trained, we're educated to uh, take care of people and do everything we can uh, to save their lives. And uh, when we listen to what's happening in Italy or Spain, it is frightening. Uh, none of us uh, in my generations and a few generations uh, before has never lived that in healthcare. Uh, so my heart goes to every healthcare worker, every professional out there that's going to have to make those decisions. But honestly, we are doing the right thing in Canada. If we could just uh, continue on our social distancing, people realizing that stay home, give us a chance to get this virus out of our community and give us a fighting chance in our healthcare system to do our jobs. And that's the only thing we're asking. Let us do our jobs to save as many lives as we can. And then we'll be writing a positive uh, history chapter for our country in the years to come. When you talk about that positivity earlier in the show, we showed some social media posts, people applauding healthcare workers. But we're hearing that that's not really the way they're treated when they actually return home. What are you hearing from nurses about that? Yeah, with this virus, I'm not hearing it as much. But uh, when SARS was in Toronto, uh, it was shameful. If uh, anybody knew you were a nurse, you were a healthcare worker, they, they were escaping you. Uh, we are well-trained professionals. We know how to disinfect ourselves, if I can use that plain term, before we enter our communities. We have families, too. There's not a nurse, a doctor, a healthcare worker that doesn't have a family that cares about them like you care about your family. So we know how to do it. You need to trust us. But employers need to give us the tools to be able to do it. Yeah, unfortunately, it, uh, hopefully that situation gets better, Linda. That's uh, where we're going to have to leave it, unfortunately. Thanks so much for joining us today. No, I thank you. The fresh air is actually good for you. Uh, it is also a way to alleviate boredom and anxiety and it helps with mental health and the challenges that people are facing in this extremely anxious and fearful time. And so we will continue to provide a public health guidance on how to do so in a safe way. That was Health Minister Patty Haidu last week talking about the importance of maintaining your mental health while 
in self-isolation. Knowing that you're not alone can help you get through this crisis. Now, one polling firm decided to take the pulse of the people asking Canadians about their state of mind and if they're ready to be in quarantine if they contract the virus. And joining us now is David Coletto from Abacus Data. Thanks very much for being here. And tell me a little bit about this. It's a really good look at this pandemic and how people are seeing it. Only 5% of people think that the worst is behind us so far. How does that play into people's mental state? Well, I think it's, it's a recognition that we're only at the beginning of this, right? Uh, 5% think the worst is behind us, but 65% think the worst is still to come and the rest of us aren't quite sure, is a reflection of how quickly... I think people's uh, concern and understanding of the scale of this epidemic is. And, and for a few weeks ago, it was something happening somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. We saw what was going on in China. We then saw it move to Italy. Now it's, it's come here. And, and I think there's growing recognition of the true impact it's going to have on, on all of our lives, both in the short term and the, the risk to our health but the long-term economic and social consequences. One of the stats in there that I thought was really interesting, not only because it involves the media, but 36% of people don't want to watch it, watch it on the news, watch about it on the news or read about it. Uh, it makes them feel more anxious. How dangerous, though, do you think that is in terms of public education and people really being armed with the knowledge as they go through their daily lives? Well, I think we're, 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 we're watching in real time, right, the, the impact it's having on people's emotional state, right? And you can't... We see in our own data the amount of people who are following this story, uh, who are watching TV news as an example to, to understand the days uh, and minutes of this issue evolving. And at some point, people are going to hit a wall and say, I don't want to hear anymore because it's really all bad news. There's not a lot of great positive news stories coming out of this yet. And so the risk is people just turn it off. And at a moment where critical information is coming out every day that is affecting our own behavior, what we should be doing, staying home, staying away from others, um, and, and the escalation of government policy around that means that it's going to get perhaps harder and harder to reach people and communicate out, which is why I think you see the federal government rolling out a $30 million ad campaign because they realize not everybody is watching TV, not mm. everybody is getting information in the same way, and that as this goes on, people might start tuning it out, and I, and I think that is a, a risk and, and the news is just having a, a real negative effect on people's just anxiousness and overall state of mind. Do you think it's also people just want to say, look, just tell me when this is over and I can go back to normal and I'll sort of hide out in my own home until then? I think there are. There's, there's quite a few people who aren't actively watching this and mm -hmm. aren't sort of getting the minute-by-minute play-by-play on, on what's happening. And, and so how do you communicate to that group, right? And the risk of misinformation getting around or rumors or, or word-of-mouth spreading things that aren't necessarily true um, escalates the more that that happens. Yeah, and uh, another thing in, in, your, uh, in your survey says that most think that it'll take about two to three months before things get back to normal, before we can live our daily lives. 29% still aren't sure. Why do you think that is? Well, I think partly because it's such a rapidly evolving issue, right? Um, just think about it. Two weeks ago, all of us were in a completely different state of mind yeah. than we are today. Um, and I think that's reflective of people's general uncertainty about this, right? They just don't know um, how long it's going to take, how, how quickly we're going to be able to, if we are going to flatten the curve and things are going to get under control, that we're going to be able to live our, 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 our lives day to day. What is important, though, is there is a relationship between how long you think this is going to last and your level of concern. Right. And those who are uncertain are just as concerned. So it's not necessarily affecting the decisions they're making. 
they're just not able to plan. And that lack of planning, lack of control, mm -hmm. is what creates further, uh, I think, anxiety around this issue. And that lack of control of whether or not people think they're actually going to get it, that leads me to my next question, which is 55% of people think that it's likely they or someone they know will come into contact with the virus. To that end, though, what does your data show about how people are ready for being in isolation, a yeah. 14-day isolation? Well, the first thing is that number has gone up very quickly over a very short period of time. Two weeks ago, we asked the same question, and a minority of Canadians thought they were likely or someone they knew was likely to get right. it. So it, it has changed quickly. But on this preparedness question, we hear stories about people you know, stockpiling certain types of household goods or canned food. or Which or may whatnot. or may not be useful. Which may not be <laughs> useful, but nonetheless, um, there's a recognition that some people are preparing, um, and most Canadians say they are at least somewhat prepared for um, a 14-day isolation mm -hmm. if they're required to do so. But there's still a minority of people, and this is, the, to me, the important thing in all this research, is that while most Canadians are doing the things they should be doing, maybe they are stocking too much on certain things, um, but they are social distancing, they are, mm -hmm. you know, um, staying home from work, they're doing all the things that, that people are asking of them, but the minority, there's a minority who aren't. And that's, How shocking is that to you? Well, that's the shocking number, and it's who are, of that group aren't. For example, we see that there's a big gender gap, right? Men are less likely to be concerned, less likely to be social distancing, less likely to think this is a big deal, particularly young men. Mm -hmm. For sure. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope we've helped you better understand what is happening in your world as you try to keep yourself and others around you safe. For the West Block, I'm Mike LeCouture. Have a great week and stay safe, everyone.